0: I'm Scott Benkin, president of Benkin Financial Services. And this is Investing for Better Living, a podcast where we'll be talking with CPAs, attorneys, doctors, real estate agents, fitness instructors, and many more experts in many different fields to talk about ways we can invest in our lives, making them richer, healthier, and more meaningful.
1: I own some property personally. My business, my law firm is an LLC. Everything I own in the business is owned me as a member of an LLC. It's separate. It's like I'm two separate legal people. And if I get sued personally, it doesn't mean my assets in an LLC can be taken. They can't.
0: In previous podcasts... One of our guest speakers was Tom Culpepper, attorney and owner of Culpepper Law in Miamisburg, Ohio. And previously, he spoke to us about what we termed simple estate planning, and we discovered that simple estate planning is not always as simple as we think it's going to be. And today, Tom's going to talk to us about another topic, asset protection. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for being on the show today. Well, Scott, thanks for having me. What is asset protection, Tom? I've read about it, heard about it, and I'm sure our listeners have heard about it. But uh, from your point of view, what is asset protection?
1: Well, let let me start off with just saying this. I can be guilty as a lawyer of using words that I assume everybody else in the public understands and I don't want to. So when I use the word asset or I use the word property, it's your money. Okay, it could be the $100 in your bank account, it could be your deed to your house, it could be your automobiles, your retirement account. Anything you own of value is an asset. So let me get that clear upfront. So what asset protection is, is it's using various types of financial instruments and legal strategies to protect your money. So for example, the most common asset protecting thing out there is insurance. And we I don't know if people think about it, but we get car insurance. We get insurance to cover our house. Um, we get health health insurance. Why? Because if we have a major medical event and it costs $200,000, we've lost all our money. That's asset protection. So people don't think about the fact that all sorts of insurance are a form of asset protection by using... I would call it a um, financial instrument like insurance, but as lawyers, we can add other things in. So for example, well-drafted contracts, if you're having someone upgrade a room in your house or you've got a business, well-drafted contracts that avoid litigation or misunderstandings to me is a form of asset protection also business entities you know most people are familiar with what's called an llc a limited liability company liability is if someone gets hurt or you are accused of breaching a contract with an employee or a vendor a limited liability company limits your liability that's another example of and why do we want them because It could cost you money, your personal assets or the assets inside that LLC. So some other things are trusts, um, certain types of trusts or asset protection trusts. They're usually irrevocable. Prenuptial agreements. People usually don't think of divorces as something that jeopardizes your assets, but it does. Ask anybody who's got a divorce. They're probably worth a whole lot less they consider afterwards. Um, and especially if they brought assets into the marriage. So, a prenuptial agreement would be an example of a legal strategy to protect your assets. There are also asset protecting statutes, federal and state, that are part of this. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other things we can do to protect your assets. There are things like offshore trusts, depending, you know, so it, it depends upon how much money we're looking at protecting. To me, that's what asset protection is, protecting your money when bad things
0: can happen. And I've named several things here that you can do to do that. Some of the things that you just mentioned, Tom, many of our listeners do own real estate, possibly rental properties and in their own residence. Would an LLC help them if they own rental properties or their own home? Would, would an LLC help them in any way? If it's a rental property, I'm assuming you don't live in it. Yeah, I think an
1: LLC is very helpful. I'll give you three reasons. So, first of all, an LLC is meant to protect the owner from the negligence of other people. So, let's say you own a rental property, the heating element goes out in the heater, you hire a contractor to come in and fix it, they do a bad job, the rental property burns down and kills your tenants. A limited liability company would protect you in several ways. Number one, you're not responsible for the negligence of, of your contractor you picked to do that if they did negligent work and that's why the house burned down and killed your tenant. Also, the LLC would, if you are liable, it limits the assets that, say, a deceased tenant renter can go after. They can only go after your assets inside the limited liability company, which depending upon how many rental properties you put in there would only be those rental properties. I find that people who own multiple rental properties sometimes will put a, a limit on their liability. So they'll say, I, I'm going to put about a half million dollars worth of rentals in one LLC. Then they'll create another one and put a half million. So they, by doing that, they're limited only to the property inside that LLC. So they limit their exposure to how much they could
0: lose. So if I understand that correctly, if somebody, people are afraid that if somebody sues them, they're going to lose everything. But in your example, if somebody in a specific property sues them, the maximum they could lose is what's in that LLC. Correct. Correct.
1: If, and there's always an if, if they keep what I call the corporate form, which gets me into a lot of details, there are sort of there is a way to say that this is a sham LLC. So, when I say an LLC, I'm talking about there's like when we draft LLCs, there's 10 or 12 documents we draft along with that to make sure that it, it looks like this is a legitimate business thing. Just filing the five page, four to five page document with the Ohio Secretary of State is not sufficient. Ohio allows you to do that. For tax purposes, the IRS will say you have an LLC. But if you read the statute, you're really supposed to have an operating agreement and a whole, in meetings, and it looks like a legitimate business, and you have annual meetings and you take notes. If you don't do that, it started, looks like it's just sort of a, a, a sham alter ego. You get into problems where they could go after your personal assets. So I have to warn people you do have to treat it like it's a business even if it's business meetings with yourself. And that's where I would always tell you, you need some legal advice as to what an LLC is supposed to be done. So legally, dot your I's, cross your T's and you get it. help if you need it. You got it. So Absolutely. anyway, that's, that's the, the first thing with the rental property, I would say why you want to do it. A second thing on the reverse side, let's say you kill somebody in a car accident or injure somebody and you own the car personally. The reverse is also true that any property you have in an LLC would be protected because you don't own it personally. One of the things people struggle with getting this legal concept is you can be the same biological person, but we at law can create different legal people. So I own some property personally. My business, my law firm is an LLC. Everything I own in the business is owned me as a member of an LLC. It's separate. It's like I'm two separate legal people. And if I get sued personally, it doesn't mean my assets in an LLC can be taken. They can't. In fact, specifically, Ohio Ohio doesn't allow that to be done. So there's an advantage that way with having an LLC protecting the property in there if you get sued personally for something you do. The third I just sort of already mentioned is how an LLC can ha- help in rental when I said people will put a cap on how much they'll put in one an LLC. So they'll, they'll create multiple ones for the very reason I talked about. So those are three ways I think an LLC is very beneficial for people on rental property. Now, let's go back to your question about putting my residence in an LLC. It is permissible to do that. You could put your house, your residence in an LLC, but I don't generally advise people to do that. And here's some reason why. First of all, the IRS has a law. Here's a question. Have you ever, for any of us who ever owned a home and we sold one, have you ever wondered why you don't pay capital gains tax when you sold it for more than you bought it? Under IRS law, I sold an asset for more. I have what's called a capital gain. Why didn't I have to pay taxes on that? Well, the IRS has a rule. I think it's 121 on the IRS code that gives every American a quarter million dollar capital gain pass on any residence that we sell, that we lived two out of the last five years in. So if you own a residence personally, you get that. If you put it in an LLC, you don't get that. Hmm. When you sell your house, you're going to pay tap, capital gains tax. I mean, that's I, I think a lot of people will be very shocked to find that out. So that's one of the things you give up with that. That's good to know. A second thing I've discovered is a lot of us didn't buy our homes with cash. So we have a mortgage. All right. If you read the mortgage agreement or the promissory note, there's something called a do-on-sale clause. If you do certain things to jeopardize the your residence as collateral to secure the uh, loan, they'll basically say you you got to pay us all the mortgage right now. One of those is putting in an LLC because you have you have transferred the property, even though you may be the member. Remember when I bet back to you are literally transferring it to a different legal person and you likely are triggering your due on sale clause. And so you better have enough. If you want to do that, you better have money to pay off your mortgage. And I think that'd be a lot of people are shocked to find that out. The third thing I would say why I wouldn't put my personal residence in an LLC is there is a homestead exemption for bankruptcy in Ohio that... You can preserve the value, a certain amount, a dollar amount of the value if you go into bankruptcy. Okay. Um, If you put in an LLC, you lose that exemption.
0: So it sounds like it's a good idea not to put your residence in an LLC.
1: Those are three reasons I wouldn't do it. The asset protection you would gain is lost. And you got to realize there is a already built in level of asset protection for a home. So the state of Ohio protects $145,425 of value you have in a residence. In other words, if you owe people money either in bankruptcy or in a lawsuit, they can't come take your home if your equity is under $145,000 approximately. And if you're married, double that. That basically means you can protect $290,000. You lose that. Yeah. If you go put an LLC, but, but that's already there. So for a lot of people, they don't need to put their house in an LLC. It's basically already protected because you can own a $400,000 home if you're married, but if you owe $150,000 on it, that's less than two ninety. It's already asset protected.
0: You don't need to put it in an LLC. Many of our listeners have heard of revocable living trusts, and some of them have revocable living trust. Does a revocable living trust protect our assets in any way?
1: no it doesn't mm. and i i get a lot of people who think it does and the reason why is there are trusts that will do that and generally there are irrevocable but not a revocable living trust and here here's legally why it doesn't work so what is a revocable living trust well revocable to me means two things um versus an irrevocable trust so when you give one of the things you have to do when you create a trust agreement, the document, or like I like to call it the manual for how the trust actually works. When you create a trust manual, the trust document, and you name a trustee, you still have to give your property to the trustee. Well, if it's revocable trust, you can get the property back, all right? If it's irrevocable, you can't. So the law is your creditors step in your shoes. If you can tell the trustee to give the property back to you, so can their, your creditor. Okay. If it's irrevocable trust, you can't get the property back from, from your trustee. Well, then neither can your creditor. Those types of trusts do work, but not a revocable one for that reason.
0: Sounds like they're very different. Uh, so people might feel they have a trust, maybe they they feel that their assets are protected, but If it's a revocable meaning they can put their hands on the asset it is not protected it's whereas an irrevocable trust legally is it as if they given it away is that what an irrevocable trust is or are they giving away control exactly exactly
1: it's like giving away your property to another person uh, an irrevocable trust um, in fact an irrevocable trust normally has to get a tax ein number from the irs that ought to tell you tax wise it's a separate legal person being a a trustee
0: you've literally given your property away permanently so yeah yeah it does matter what about retirement accounts like 401ks 403bs tsa's iras roth iras things of that nature are those types of uh, assets protected from creditors actually yes they are
1: they are and again Some asset protection is done by statute. You know, you don't always have to have insurance or a trust or an LLC or a corporation or a prenuptial agreement. There are certain things that um, the federal or state governments have passed laws protecting people from their creditors. So I think it was in 1974, correct me, Scott, federal government passed ERISA, and ERISA was basically a federal law that gave asset protection to any type of retirement money actually any type of 401k 403b type of plan i know it protects those it depends this is where it gets back to the the fact what is it what type of retirement vehicle is it but i uh, know 401k and 403b are protected by law. so basically you can owe a million dollars and your creditors can't touch your retirement account while it's in the retirement account now the minute it hits your checking account different story Okay, but while it's in there they can't do it so that is those types the state of ohio passed a law dealing with iras so traditional roth iras they are actually protected under ohio law and just like law would affect with the 403Bs and 401Ks, those are protected completely as long as it, you know, but the minute you take it out, you take an RMD, a required minimal distribution, hits your checking account, then it's no longer protected. But
0: Understood. while it's in Understood. there, they are asset protected. Tom, I've, I've read some about offshore trusts. Could you tell me a little bit about those? I don't really know much about offshore trusts. When do we need one? When might I wish to consider an offshore trust to protect assets?
1: Well, an offshore trust is one of the legal strategies for protecting your assets. And so you as a financial advisor would always, one of the things you tell your clients to protect their assets from downturns in the stock market is diversification, right? You diversify it across different stocks and mutual funds and bonds because Just because one area is down doesn't mean the other one is. It could go up. Well, offshore trusts take that sort of diversification idea, but they do it across different government entities, should I say. So, for example, there are countries out there that do not recognize decisions in U.S. courts. So if you got sued by a creditor in the U.S. and you had property in a jurisdiction that does not recognize a decision by a U.S. court, that money in that country is protected. And so this sort of diversification across different countries who don't recognize U.S. courts or what is a form of asset protection. So that's what a um, offshore trust is, is you name a place like the Cook Island, very popular um, It's in the South Pacific. They don't recognize U.S. court decisions, and a judge in the U.S. can't order a trustee of an offshore trust in the Cook Islands to do anything. They have no jurisdiction over them. And if you design a trust that says that if a U.S. court orders you to bring that money back on U.S. shore, so to speak, that you're terminated as a beneficiary or terminated as a trustee, which these offshore trusts are drafted that way. That money, literally, a decision by a US court is moot. It's mm-hmm. not going to affect it. So that's sort okay. of what an offshore tr- how it works and why it works. And so, and, and it does work. Um, I know in the Cook Islands, their laws are very asset protection friendly. So for example, I was told it may take up to a million dollars to go to Cook Islands and sue somebody that owes a debt. So it's very Mm -hmm. prohibited for a creditor to go there. They're likely to settle with you for much less. The creditor has to prove by, you know, in the US it's just a preponderance standard that they have to prove to the court by preponderance of the evidence that you owe them this debt and well, in the Cook Islands, it's more like the criminal standard—beyond a reasonable doubt. It's hard to prove. I mean, yeah. so yeah. It, it works. I haven't heard that no one has ever succeeded in a Cook Island offshore trust and winning a lawsuit to get the money back. So people, then, when they realize that your your creditors often will settle for far
0: less. Well, it sounds like for those listeners that are interested in asset protections, there's quite a few different uh, avenues to go, whether it's an LLC. We've discussed that a revocable living trust is not a good option, but another option is an irrevocable trust. And for those clients that really wish to take it that step further, offshore trust may be an option.
1: That's correct. And I and I should say a little bit more about it. It does cost money to set them up and maintain them. So the rule of thumb I've been told is you need to have at least a million dollars in liquid assets that you can stash away for a rainy day, so to speak, if something bad happens and that that can be protected because it can cost twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars to set one of these up and the IRS has a or law that anytime you own property in a foreign trust and that's would be defined there's special accounting rules and penalties so you could pay another five to ten thousand dollars in cpa uh, accounting fees to do that so it does come with a price and that's something people have to recognize um before they would probably do an offshore trust but they do work
0: really appreciate the information you're sharing with us thanks again tom this has been very very informative i've learned a lot today you're welcome scott thanks for having me on you bet For those of you who would like more information on Tom's firm, you can visit him on the web at callpepperlawllc.com. That's C-U-L-P-E-P-P-E-R-L-A-W-L-L-C.com. You can also find Call Pepper Law on Facebook and look for reviews on Google. Their office number is 937-589-4144. We also have links for him in our show notes. I'm Scott Benkin. Join us next time as we continue to investigate ways to invest in fuller, richer, and more meaningful lives.
1: Securities offered through SA Stone Wealth Management Inc. Member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services provided through Miami Valley Portfolio Management Inc. Miami Valley Portfolio Management Inc. is not affiliated with SA Stone Wealth Management Inc.